2: Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship SOFA, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the district of Wonders. Come and find yours. in transmissions waiting to be found and i
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Show five hundred and eighty-eight. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fantastic original story today, The Girl of the Golden City by Forrest Brazil. How about that? Yes, and it's narrated by the author as well. And normally we're a little bit kind of shy on that area because sometimes authors think they can narrate and they can't. But man, Forrest certainly can. So you're in for a real treat. And as I look out my window now, it is absolutely soaking wet, cold, windy. So let's just leave this dank dark place and we'll head into Forrest's Story. Forest Brazil is a software engineer, writer and cartoonist based in rural Virginia. His short stories have appeared or are forth- forthcoming in Daily Science Fiction, Diabolical Plots, Abyssin Apex and elsewhere. Find him at forestbrazil.com or on Twitter at forestbrazil. And like I say, this story is narrated by the author as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud present.
4: The Girl of the Golden City by Forrest Brazil.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
4: Just the way Rick remembered it, cutting right through the cardigan, Emmy crocheted for him. What's the old line? The coldest winter I ever spent was my summer in San Francisco. At least the weather hadn't changed, here in the Silicon Valley of the Shadow. Droves of botflies rode the wind from under the sagging awnings of the abandoned restaurants on the pier. The tiny drones swarmed around Rick, touching his face and hands, tasting his sweat, capturing video of his angry motions as he swiped them away. They probably weren't sending the data anywhere at this point, but still he felt the loathsome sense of exposure. He turned up the collar of his cardigan, like an old-time private eye. Behind what used to be a seafood shack tottered one of the free-nutrition kiosks. Battered, rusted, peeling paint from its half-legible logo, Godega or Chugaloo or something like that, Rick pounded the side, rattled the dispenser handle, small brown pellets shook into his outstretched hand. He stared at them for a minute. Were they rat droppings? Gross. Someone in a yellow slicker watched him from a nest of cardboard and trash bags in the doorway of the restaurant. Hey! shouted Rick. He fished in his pants pocket, pulled out the charcoal sketch of Emmy's face. Have you seen my daughter? He waved the paper toward the bum. Did she eat here? The mound of trash shifted slightly, said a low musical croak, Ain't nobody eat there. That machine has been hacked. Just poison pellets now. Rick studied the unappetizing handful for a moment, then stuffed it in his pocket. He kept the picture out long enough for the botflies to get a good look. They might be useful to his plan after all. Gotta keep moving. He had drawn the portrait last year, during the long winter evenings, while Emmy worked on the cardigan. He used an endpaper separated painstakingly from the spine of one of his precious books. Frequently he commanded her to hold her head just so, capturing the firelit shadows on jaw and cheekbone. "'If you want a picture of me, Daddy,' she had pouted,
2: "'why
4: not use a camera?' "'You know why not.' "'No, I don't. I don't know anything.' "'Sure you do.' He sensed them tumbling toward the new, alarming grounds of argumentation she had developed over the past few months. "'You're reading the Shakespeare book,' he reminded her. "'hoping to divert the subject. "'That's not anything,' she said. "'It's less than nothing. "'It's words with no meanings.' "'He pressed his lips together to stop a reproof. "'Words on paper are the only things that have meanings, Emmy.' "'She fell silent, but let the half-finished cardigan slide from her lap. "'She stared into the fire and sucked on one of the crochet needles. "'Look this way for a second,' he said. "'She turned glazed eyes in his direction, "'and he deepened the shadows in the portrait.' "'deciding that maybe this was a teachable moment after all. "'Never trust a camera. "'Once that image is digitized, converted to bits, "'it's fair game for any pervert or bot in the world.' "'She turned back to the fire. "'Yeah. "'But you look real pretty, though,' he added. "'He feathered the eyelashes in the picture. "'A fairly true likeness and incorruptible. "'Not as good as a photograph, maybe. "'But not as bad, either.' He walked briskly up Russian Hill, paying no attention to the traffic lights which flashed obscene messages in red and yellow Morse code, some long-forgotten hacker's idea of a big joke. He used the center of the street because the sidewalks were taken up with tents and small shelters of wood and corrugated cardboard. The wind here smelled foul. An autonomous taxi, one of the few vehicles on the road, slowed suggestively beside him. Rick considered catching a ride, but noticed in time the swirling pixels on the car's navigation screen. It was as likely to take him off the Golden Gate Bridge as to his destination. At the corner of Polk and Van Ness, an overweight guy in a turtleneck sweater was dancing in the road, ducking in plain sight, dodging, shadowboxing, clouds of botflies scattering around him. Huge patches of sweat darkened his armpits despite the cold. A cowl made of black mesh covered his head and face. Rick gathered his nerves. The man was bigger than he'd prefer. Tiptoeing, crab sideways, he stole up to the gyrating figure, so close he could smell the reeking sweat. A fist shot out, and Rick ducked, but the aggression wasn't aimed at him. It was personal, inward-facing, a dream fight. Rick grasped the cowl in both hands and pulled it off the other man's head in one swift tug. Without looking back, he took off down Van Ness as fast as his middle-aged legs would carry him. The body hit the pavement behind him with a heavy slap. The guy shouted hoarsely, frantically, inarticulate syllables, like sleep talk. Rick relaxed a bit, though he didn't slow his pace. Anyone who'd been inside a cowl so long they forgot how to speak wouldn't have the inner ear balance to chase him far. After about three blocks, he caught up with the taxi again. It had run into a fire hydrant and stood disabled, emitting a steady, depressed-sounding beep. He climbed into the rear seat and locked all the doors, huddling low in case anyone should come looking for him. Here he examined the cowl. It was wet and stank, but that's not what brought revulsion in the back of his throat. He'd gone twenty years without putting on one of these things. The mere idea of dipping back into the stream gave him its own form of nausea, almost panic. He reminded himself that the fear was healthy. He wouldn't get lost this time. He was on a mission." But still he toyed with the cowl, raising it to his face and then dropping it again as his palms slicked with cold sweat. The little poison pellets formed a hard lump against his thigh. He remembered Emmy's face as he had last seen her. He pulled the rank-smelling fabric over his head. Instantly his senses flooded with sights, sounds, smells, incomprehensible images flashed before his eyes, weird combinations of color and light morphing in and out of each other at bewildering speed a low hum rose and fell in his ears. The cowl's previous owner must have worn it for years. The stimulation stream was so attuned to the other man's neural ticks that Rick might as well have been inside someone else's dream. His heart pounded, and his breath came quickly as the sounds and images assaulted him. For a terrifying moment, he teetered on the edge of a seizure. Soon, however, the tempo and brightness of the changing images subsided, smoothing into a kind of visual muzak, abstract but unthreatening. The cow had recognized its effect on Rick's baffled brain. Its algorithms scanned him, looking for impulses to direct the stimulation stream. This was good. Rick felt more in control of himself, on top of the situation. Maybe he could handle this. Bracing himself with one hand against the front seat of the taxi, he concentrated his mind as intensely as he could on his memories of Emmy. They ate dinner together every night, usually a root vegetable from his garden and some kind of small game— rabbit or squirrel. He set traps in the overgrown lots of his foreclosed neighbors, and had ambitions of one day taking down a deer. "'Tell me about when you lived in the city,' Emmy would say, the starlight eagerness creeping into her eyes. He scoffed, demurred. "'That's old news. You've heard all my stories. I like them anyway.' The way she sat, with her stocking feet tucked up beneath her on the dining-room chair— just as she had when she was five years old, melted his resistance. Well, I used to work in an office building, you know, fifty stories high. Really, forty-nine, she prompted, because they skipped the thirteenth floor. That's right, and I wrote code all day, pretty boring stuff. Tell me about what you ate for lunch. Well, sometimes I would bring a peanut butter sandwich from home. Daddy, the kiosk thing. Right, there used to be these little food stands on almost every corner, called Godega or Chugaloo or something like that, and when you walked up they would scan your face, you know, and your weight, and figure out what kind of nutrition was best for your body type, and then these little pills would come out that had exactly the vitamins and protein that you needed, and all for free. That's so cool, she said, as she always did, and he felt deep discomfort, as though he was abetting her in a dangerous fantasy. Nothing's free, after all. The thought of all that user data flowing back to some half-assed startup made him ill now. "'The pellets didn't taste so great,' he said. "'For all I know, the stands are out of business now.' "'We could go to the city and see,' she suggested. "'We never go anywhere.' "'We go plenty of places,' said Rick. "'We don't go to the city.' "'It's not like it was.' "'I wouldn't mind.' "'I'd mind, all right. It's not safe for you there.' He plopped his napkin into the center of his empty plate with finality. "'Seriously?' She got up in a gangly scramble of arms and legs, leaning across the table, and with surprise he saw her eyes reddening with tears. "'I'm not a kid. I know nothing's like it used to be in—what's that stupid Shakespeare saying—in your salad days. You don't run the world with your code anymore. But I still deserve to see things, don't I?' "'You're not even fifteen,' said Rick." That's still a child in my book, and believe me when I say that I want you to experience the fullness of life, but you won't get that in the city. Why do you think everything came crashing down? Nobody wanted to buy your code anymore, mumbled Emmy. She looked accusingly up at him from under her hair. Information hyperinflation, stated Rick. The jargon brought dullness to her face, which he took as a sign he was winning the argument. It became impossible to trust digital data. Anything could be hacked, anything could be faked— There's no truth in the city. There's no truth in this house, she said. We put our heads in the sand. We don't even know who the president is. I'm not sure you can know that, Rick retorted. Without going to the White House and seeing for yourself, I wouldn't trust anything that comes from— I don't want to hear it, cried Emmy. Just let me alone. And she leaped up from the table. Her stocking feet thudded softly up the carpeted stairs to her bedroom. Her slamming door brought a small breeze that lifted Rick's napkin into his lap. He slumped at the table for a while with his chin on his fist. He felt sure that either he had failed her or she was ungrateful to him, and could not decide which idea he preferred less. Rick began to notice patterns in the cowl's shape-shifting images. At first they seemed like tricks of his eyes, but soon he could identify the ghostly contours of Emmy's face. She cropped up in his peripheral vision. She floated from right to left across his field of view. A jolt of excitement split his brain. The cowl immediately picked up the stimulation. Before long, the merging pictures before his eyes were all Emmy. The stream simply reflected his own memories for a little while, but then Emmy began to do things he did not remember. She smiled and talked to him from a swing in a garden. She told him she loved him. She started to take her clothes off, but he recoiled, and the cowl learned that he did not have that kind of love for her. The cowl occasionally mixed in other images and sounds from the larger stream, things that seemed vaguely related to sports, to music, but even though some of them looked intriguing, he averted his mind from them as much as possible. He kept looking for Emmy. After many hours, he pulled off the cowl and dragged stale air into his lungs. Night had come to the city, and someone had sprayed gang signs over the windows of the taxi. He locked the cowl in the trunk so nobody else could recalibrate it and began to walk uptown toward the financial district. Deep self-loathing slipped over him, interior dirtiness, a sense of having compromised himself for no purpose. Whatever memories of Emmy he'd managed to push onto the stream would soon be swallowed up, obliterated in the swell of thirty million users. The stream ran faster than he could. If he was ever to get any traction in his quest, he needed a fundamentally different tactic. Go big or go home. He fingered the pellets in his pocket again. He paused before an imposing building, once gleaming glass and steel, now encased in plyboard past the height of a stone's throw. Spray-painted graffiti and peeling handbills covered the front entrance. At the top of the tower, fifty stories up—really forty-nine—still scowled the imprint where Santa Clara Stream Partners once had their giant logo. He remembered when that was taken down, by an autonomous crane that got hacked halfway through the job and ended up putting its jib right through the window of the break room. The crane had toppled in slow motion like a poorly assembled dinosaur skeleton in a museum, and when the former employees of SCSP wandered out of the lobby clutching exit interview slips and cardboard boxes, they had to step over guts and bones of machinery. It was like picking your way off a battlefield where only your body, but not your soul, had survived. Rick squinted up at the tiny camera over the door, forcing himself not to look away from the hungry face scanner. Lo and behold, he was still in the system, or more likely every face in the world was by now. The board-covered door swung open. The lobby was filled with dust and trash and a pile of smashed PCs like some piece of faux-cathartic performance art. Decaying yellow tape blocked the elevator. He took the stairs. He took the stairs to Emmy's room, too, that final night, overcoming his impulse to let her cry it out. Her door was closed but not locked. He knocked softly and then nudged his way in. She sprawled on her stomach across the bed, feet in the air, Above the headboard gleamed her topographic map of San Francisco. He had given that to her as a birthday present two years ago, archaic as it was because it was committed to paper and could never be changed by mischievous hackers. They had pored over it for hours, marking the earthquake fault lines and wondering when the big one might come. Silly, he had thought to himself, even at the time. The big one has already hit the city, only it wasn't earthquakes or the wildfires or the drought— It was the stream, and the people who built it, who worshipped artificial intelligence and ignored the power of human stupidity. In some sense, as much as you could blame any individual software architect with a stream addiction and delusions of making the world a better place, he himself had crashed the city. When she saw him enter, she flinched, and concealed something in her hand under the bedclothes. "'What you got there?' he asked. He'd intended to come in with soothing words, but realized he sounded like an interrogator. "'Ugh.' "'Nothing.' She didn't look at him. "'Okay, then.' He sat down heavily beside her. They both were silent for a while. "'Here's my idea,' he said at last, tentatively placing a hand on her shoulder. "'In a few months, when they get some of the rioting under control, we'll go to Palo Alto. I hear the police force is making a comeback with human troopers instead of drones. I know it's not a big city, but there's still plenty of—' "'Sure, Dad.' Her nose was red, her voice dull and thick. Whatever. He picked at a non-existent spot on her bedspread. I saw so many families torn apart when the crash first came. When the schools closed and the gangs came into the suburbs. Kids and cows killing each other because of some nonsense that showed up on the stream or faking deaths on video that looked so real you'd never know the difference. I just can't lose you that way. I need you to grow up strong, grounded in reality, or you'll get destroyed out there. Sure, she said again. I feel so strong. She never used to have this cutting attitude. He scratched the bald spot on top of his head. "'What happened to you? "'What about all the fun we used to have right here in the neighborhood? "'Remember when we would jump rope? "'I taught you all the moves.' She didn't smile. "'That was a long time ago.' He chanted the rhyme that used to be their special watchword, softly massaging her shoulder with one hand. "'The wind, the wind, the wind blows high. "'The rain comes scattering down the sky.' "'She is handsome. She is pretty. "'She is the girl of the Golden City. "'She goes courting. One, two, three. "'Won't you tell me? Who is she?' "'She writhed away from him "'and snatched her hand from under the bedspread. "'Stop,' she said. "'I don't care about that stupid stuff anymore. "'I just want to know how the world works.' "'She held out an empty powder compact. "'A single botfly buzzed and slapped "'against the transparent plastic. "'He came in the window.' "'I call him Francis.' "'Rick's eyes widened. "'Are you out of your mind? Give me that.' "'He grabbed her wrist and wrenched the compact away. "'Somebody could be watching you get dressed through that thing, "'or worse, tracking you for abduction.' "'I keep it in a drawer,' she protested. "'She flailed ineffectually against his stiff arm, fending her off. "'I just want one thing, just this one little thing.' "'Don't be so dramatic. You're not Rapunzel. You have plenty of things.' Rick got off the bed and pushed his way out of the room, closing the door against the sound of her enraged sobs. He went down to the den and paced around among his books and papers. He thought feverishly about flushing the botfly down the toilet, or crushing it in the garbage disposal. As he turned the little thing over in his hands, the sheer craft of the rotors and housing brought a fleeting sense of, what, wonder? He remembered not how he used to feel when the stream was new and full of possibility, but at least the feeling of feeling that. This was what Emmy saw, not the creepiness, just the fragile beauty. It was like holding a tiny creature from an alien world. He put the botfly back in the powder compact and tucked it into his pocket. Maybe he could hack it, disable the camera, make it safe in some way for her. They could play with it together. The next morning, when he became concerned about how late she was sleeping, he discovered her bed neatly made and empty. A note in very poor cursive lay on the pillow, saying that she would be back soon and not to worry. The map above her bed, showing the twenty-mile route to San Francisco, was gone. Rick startled badly in the dark stairwell of the tower when he came upon a slumped body in a cowl. The hands protruding from the shirt sleeves were mummified claws. He recognized the face on the employee badge as Matt, his former engineering manager. Matt had never been able to grasp the New World Order. When software developers became mostly unemployable, there were two options for guys who had spent a lifetime behind a laptop. Use up your savings and scrape by with menial labor, or retreat into the stream. Rick, eventually, had chosen the former course. He had last seen Matt sitting in the center of their empty cubicle farm, motionless inside his cowl, while the fluorescent lights dimmed one by one above him. Rick didn't touch Matt's cowl now. He continued softly on. In the top of the tower, he found what he'd been hoping for. Vast racks of servers, blinking red and green and breathing hotly into the darkness. Once this equipment had been worth millions of dollars, now it wasn't even worth stripping for scrap. He took the powder compact from his pocket and plugged Francis the botfly into one of the servers. Hesitantly at first, hardly remembering the positions of his fingers on the keyboard, he ran through the motions of hacking the botfly. It was disturbingly easy. The once-fabled cryptographic protections were no match for the quantum bits at his disposal. He accessed the network, sent commands. Soon, the giant hole in the glass window beside him—the place where the crane had smashed through—quivered with darting specks. The botfly streamed in from across the city, ten and twenty at a time. Each group carried a single cowl filched from some twitching pedestrian in Haight-Ashbury, the Tenderloin, Mission Bay. He'd spread the attacks out geographically to get the widest possible array of inputs. The stream needed to believe that everyone in town was obsessed with his Emmy. All night, throughout the next day, and into the following night, Rick worked with desperate urgency amid the growing pile of cowls. He spent two to three hours inside each one before throwing it aside. First, he recalibrated the stream from the previous owner's slurry of algorithmic nonsense, then populated it with Emmy's voice and face. Some cowls sported a modification permitting direct neural messages to other users. He filled these message streams with short, urgent missives like Pony Express telegrams. Have you seen Emmy Parker? Please repeat. He encoded his memory of her face as well as he could, given his rusty grasp of the technique, and sent it along as a serialized bitstream. Outside the window, he had a pretty good view of the financial district, where the massive stone buildings wore LCD screens on their sides to a height of three or four hundred feet. Instead of advertisements, the screen showed a garbled mishmash synthesized from millions of user streams— this should have been the pinnacle of Rick's life work, a marvelous melding of human creativity and algorithmic intelligence at the core of the city. But that's not the way it worked out. After all, it only took a few rogue actors to sow false information across the stream. The code was biased toward engagement. The vast majority of legitimate users were no match for a handful of bots with a coordinated agenda. The hackers had plundered the system and moved on, but the stream remained, its infrastructure powered by wind and sun like some inescapable natural phenomenon, waiting for someone to manipulate it for good or evil. The screens around him began to flicker. "'I wish you could be here to see this, Emmy,' he whispered. Because, of course, he had found her almost as soon as he arrived in the city. She sprawled, lifeless, by the side of the 101, her stomach distended, her face greenish with flecks of blood on the lips— Clutched in her hand were the brown, dung-like pellets from Godega or Chugaloo, the city's free gifts of death. He picked her up, called her name, rocked her, cried over her, begged her forgiveness. He sang her the lullabies and Christmas carols she loved as a child. He chanted the jump-rope rhyme. She did not respond. He felt the severance of the truth they had kept alive between them. And, in the end, there was nothing left to do but bury her. "'digging in the soft embankment beside the road "'with a rusted traffic sign in his bare hands. "'He heaped crumbled concrete on the grave "'until his hands scraped raw. "'Then he huddled over the mound "'while the wind ripped through his cardigan, "'unable to form any coherent thoughts "'besides a harsh, repeated refrain, "'This isn't right. "'This can't be the end of her story. "'She deserved so many things "'that I ran out of time to give her.' "'The botfly swarmed around his head, "'and beyond the hills he could see screens.' "'flashing in the broken heart of the city. "'She deserved a memorial the size of the stream itself. "'Now, from a vantage point on Twin Peaks, "'he watched in wonder as the stars came out over the bay, "'and his handiwork emerged on the skyscrapers. "'The Transamerica Pyramid, the Transbay Tower, and all the rest, "'each screen held a perfect image of his Emmy. "'She laughed, she played, She skipped rope in Union Square and south of Market, and along the Embarcadero. The stream addicts weaved and boogied unsteadily on the beach and in Golden Gate Park, every one of them spellbound by her, and only her. The meme and the mystery of his Emmy had its own inexorable momentum now. She had become the virus that held the city captive. "'It works,' he said aloud. A short, painful sound, a laugh or a sob. (laughs) "'Who would believe it? It all works perfectly.' the culmination of his career, after all. She caught his eye with a hundred-foot smile from the top of the tallest tower, an animated version of his charcoal drawing, and mouthed the remembered words, "'This is so cool!' Rick folded the original portrait carefully and placed it in his shirt pocket next to his heart. From his hip pocket, he dug out the pellets he had found on the wharf yesterday. He imagined the bittersweet stale taste, followed by the quick-spreading misery." No, better not to dwell on it beforehand. At least it would be one last experience he shared with her. But at the last second, with her luminous eyes on him, he hesitated. Giving up was always the end of his story, not hers. A nagging sense crawled at him that some fundamental truth was waiting out in the world, meant for Emmy to discover, something he would have to find and hold in his heart for her. He remained huddled on a park bench throughout the night, oblivious to the light rain that came in on the wind while the pellets dissolved in his hand. A couple of times he poked his head into a cowl, just to check the fidelity of the stream. If there were any hackers left, they'd have to go through him to reach the girl of the Golden City.
3: Come on now. Oh, man, Forrest, listen, thank you. Honestly, it's been an honour. Thank you so much. And original, the Starship's over as well. Thank you so much indeed. And I normally like to thank the narrator as well at this time. So Forrest, again, thank you so much. Oh, man, hey, get, get on this show and get some more narrations off you. Oh, lovely. Forrest, thank you. Honestly, thank you for so much. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. It has been fantastic. I'm back into the kind of cool, dark, wet. I'm supposed to go up the allotment today, but I don't think that's going to happen. Not nice at all. Right then. Look after work. Look after the show. Support one period. That would be ideal if you could. I'm going to possibly in the next week or so. I'm thinking about it anyways, just making like a special, like a $5 one to cut out everything and just get the story, the author's name and the story as well. If you wanted just that on the, the Patreon, you can just listen to that as well. Don't forget, if you're on Patreon, to go to my site and grab the feed if you're not already using it, because then you get the ads ad-free. Until next week, just like to say a good night from me.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. I'm moving slow, so I'm